The Ontario Court of Appeals blocks enforcement of an award, res judicata in China, arbitration clauses in employment agreements in California, a Turkey versus Iraq dispute, and Vietnam mixes it up with M&A and arbitration and labor disputes in South Africa. All this and more on this week's episode of Disputes Digest. But before we jump into it, don't forget to share the show with a friend and colleague, and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Okay, let's jump into it. First, to kick off today's episode, we delve into a decision by the Court of Appeal in Ontario that might just stir up the world of commercial arbitration in the region. So sit back and let's take a look at this topic. First off, some quick takeaways. Here's the gist. The Ontario courts have decided that contracts specifying disputes to be finally settled by arbitration or an award to, quote, be final and binding, end quote, are set to block any appeals from an arbitral award. The perspective is somewhat new in Ontario and may shift the province further towards safeguarding arbitral awards from appeal, who had agreed to a set of contracts with multi-tier dispute resolution clauses. A disagreement arose resulting in a tribunal awarding TEBC over Canadian $100 million. Bifelin sought to appeal this award, alleging errors of law. The Court of Appeal for Ontario, however, rejected that appeal. And here's where it gets interesting. The law of Ontario allows appeals from an arbitration on points of law, fact or mixed facts, and law, depending on what the contract stipulates. But Bifelin's argument that the contract didn't address appeals was quashed when the court stated that the contract expressly declared disputes would be, quote, finally settled, end quote, by arbitration, thereby blocking any appeals. Now you might be thinking, what does this mean for commercial arbitration in Ontario and beyond? Well, it reinforces Ontario's stance as a staunch pro-arbitration jurisdiction, potentially curtailing the practical scope of appeal rights, and it might influence other provinces grappling with the boundaries of statutory appeals rights. But it's crucial to note that this could set Ontario apart even from other arbitration-friendly places like England and Wales, for example. And in that instance, phrases like, quote, final and binding, end quote, are finally settled haven't been enough to block appeal rights, but Ontario seems to be taking it a step further. So what's the final takeaway here? If you're setting up arbitration agreements in jurisdictions that still allow appeals on questions of law, it could be a smart move to include phrases like final and binding and finally settling in your contracts. Without these, you might find your arbitration agreement does not block appeals. And with Ontario's recent decision, we might be seeing a shift in the arbitration landscape. Then from there, let's hop around the globe to the People's Republic of China, where we are diving into a dynamic case decided by the Supreme People's Court of the Supreme People. Where we are diving into a dynamic case settled by the Supreme People's Court of the People's Republic of China, or PRC, addressing the principle of res judicata. All right, let's start from the top. In the crosshairs of this dispute were an asset purchase contract and a capital infusion contract tied to a parcel of land. After a roller coaster of arbitrations and litigations, the crux of the matter boiled down to whether the principle of res judicata was violated when the same issue was heard more than once by different courts. And here's a breakdown of what happened. The two parties, seller and buyer, signed contracts to sell a parcel of land. The buyer initially took the seller to arbitration, winning the land's title. Then, based on the same contract, the seller took the buyer to arbitration, winning damages related to the land's transaction. 
not pleased about any of this, the buyer then sued the seller under the asset purchase contract, seeking to recoup the damages awarded in the second arbitration. This is where the Supreme People's Court stepped in. The court dismissed buyer's claims on the ground that res judicata, a principle that prevents the same issue from being heard more than once, did not operate in this manner. So let's dive even deeper into the facts of the case. The two contracts were signed on the same day but had the same objectives, transferring the land parcel to the buyer's subsidiary. The court thus held that if a party's goal under either agreement has been satisfied, the party is not entitled to asset rights based on the other agreement. Despite the two agreements being separate, both arbitrations initiated by different parties were rooted in the capital and fusion agreement. Thus, the trial and appellate court, by hearing the buyer's case and disposing of the substantive issue again, violated the principle of res judicata. The court outlined the principle of res judicata into three parts under Chinese law. One, if an adjudicated matter, such as the contract's performance, has already been dealt with in a prior lawsuit. A party is barred from initiating a new lawsuit on the basis that such performance was not fulfilled under the different contract. Two, a disposition of a binding award or judgment cannot be revoked or contradicted by a subsequent award or judgment. Three, parties and courts must respect and uphold prior judgments or arbitral awards. This case is unique because traditionally the test for res judicata in PRC law has revolved around whether the parties, the subject matter, and the claims in subsequent litigation are the same as those in the previous lawsuit. However, the court decided to apply a different legal test, focusing on the performance of the contract over which parties possess rights and bear obligations. The fact that this performance was adjudicated in a prior lawsuit and that this performance has actually taken place. In essence, while the court did deviate from the traditional legal test for res judicata, this doesn't mean that the old legal test is abolished. The ruling just shows that the court will interpret the principle of res judicata based on the peculiar facts of each case. In a nutshell, this case reminds us that the court will apply principles such as res judicata to ensure that judicial resources are not wasted on repetitious lawsuits and that a party cannot initiate a lawsuit just because they were unhappy with the outcome of the last one. From there, let's jump over to the United States and talk about a recent decision that's shaking up the employment world in California. On April 19, 2023, the California Court of Appeal ruled in a case called Alberto v. Cambrian Home Care. In summary, the court said that the employer's arbitration agreement, which states that the contract's disputes must be settled in binding arbitration instead of going to court, was unenforceable. Why? Because of some dicey terms found in other documents given to employees when they were hired. Zooming out for a second for the bigger picture, Cambrian Home Care hired Jennifer Playo Alberto in 2019 as an administrative employee. As part of her hiring, she had to sign an arbitration agreement and a separate confidentiality agreement. In the arbitration agreement, Alberto agreed that most employment-related disputes would go to binding arbitration, not to court. But in the confidentiality agreement, Alberto agreed to some fairly broad terms that she had to keep Cambrian's trade secrets, including things like compensation and salary data, confidential. If she violated that, Cambrian would get an immediate court injunction without posting bond. Fast forward to 2020, Alberto filed a proposed class action lawsuit against Cambrian over wage and hour claims. Cambrian tried to compel arbitration pursuant to the arbitration agreement. But here's the kicker, the trial court said no. The reason? The court decided that the arbitration and confidentiality agreements were part of the same package, 
essentially two parts of one bigger contract. Therefore, any problems with the confidentiality agreement also tainted the arbitration agreement. The trial court found that the whole thing, both procedurally and substantively, were unconscionable. On appeal, the second appellate district affirmed the trial court's decision. This was based on section 1642 of the California Civil Code, which essentially says that separate contracts related to the same thing between the same parties made as part of the same transaction should be taken together. The appellate court agreed that the arbitration agreement was procedurally unconscionable as a contract of adhesion, meaning that it was a take it or leave it provision. It was also substantively unconscionable because it was non-mutual and prevented Alberto from discussing compensation and salary information and required a wholesale waiver of her right to make claims under the Private Attorneys General Act. And while the arbitration agreement had a severability clause, a provision that usually lets you cut out the bad parts and keep the rest of the contract, the court decided that the unconscionable terms were so embedded in the agreement that they could not be severed. This case is a big deal for employers in California, especially those who use arbitration agreements alongside other employment contracts. It opens up the door to the possibility of such agreements being rendered unenforceable because of terms in other agreements. The takeaway from all this, it is a crucial to remember to keep an eye on how legal decisions like these can change the landscape of employment laws. So employers, it might be a good idea to have a fresh look at your onboarding documents. From there, let's take another trip around the globe, this time over to Turkey and Iraq, where there's a dispute relating to the Iraq and Turkey pipeline, or ITP for short. On February 13th of 2023, the International Chamber of Commerce, ICC, issued an arbitration award in favor of Iraq, ruling that Turkey breached the 1973 ITP agreement between 2014 and 2018. The result? Turkey has to cough up a cool 1.9 billion US dollars. But here's the twist. Turkey is now refusing to restart the ITP operations on their side until another arbitration regarding similar claims from 2018 forward is settled. To give you a bit of context, the conflict began when Turkey began loading oil tankers in the port of Kayanet with Kurdish oil. To give you a bit of context, the conflict began when Turkey started loading oil tankers in the port of Kayan with Kurdish transported oil through the ITP. The kicker here was that the Kurdish regional government, or KRG, and Turkey had an energy framework agreement in play, but the federal government of Iraq had consistently instructed Turkey to stop all activities using the ITP. Iraq claimed that Turkey was in violation of the ITP agreement by transporting, storing, and loading Kurdish oil without their approval. The tribunal agreed with Iraq on two points, the unauthorized loading of crude oil in Kayan port and Turkey's denial of access to certain facilities. But it wasn't a clear-cut victory for Iraq. Turkey counterclaimed that Iraq violated the ITP agreement as well. The tribunal found that Iraq had failed to pay various fees, awarding Turkey about 500 million USD. Iraq's final win was roughly 1.5 billion. Now, in addition to the financial outcome, the award has another crucial result. It's laid the groundwork for a ceasefire between the federal government of Iraq and the KRG on the issue of Kurdish oil exports, which has been a bone of contention for years. A temporary agreement now allows Kurdish oil to be exported through the Iraqi State Oil Marketing Company, also known as the SOMO, in a win-win for both sides. However, Turkey has stopped all ITP operations on their side following the award. Reports suggest 
they won't resume until they've settled with Iraq regarding the awarded amount or until the second arbitration filed by Turkey is resolved. If the ITP isn't reopened soon, the impact could be substantial in terms of the damage realized, especially to the KRG, which relies on it for exports. Meanwhile, Iraq is considering exports by truck. So we're seeing a fascinating blend of politics, international law, and oil interest at play. The arbitration award is not the only a financial win for Iraq, but also has the potential to reshape the dynamics of oil expert in the region, possibly leading to a federal oil and gas law. Then from there, let's head to Vietnam and take a look at a crucial decision in Vietnam that will have a significant implication on cross-border M&A and potentially international arbitration in the region. In January 2023, the High Court of Vietnam in Hanoi upheld a decision not to recognize an award from Singapore International Arbitration Center, or SEAC, in the case of Global Payment Services and UTC Investment Co. versus VMG. This case is one of the first reported instances of such decisions in Vietnam, making it a landmark event in the country's legal landscape. The story begins on November 16th, when VMG agreed to sell over 62% of its shares in the payment intermediary company, ePay, to Global Payment Services and UTC. Unfortunately, things took a dark turn in 2018 when the CEO, chief accountant, and sales director of VMG were all arrested for involvement in a large online gambling syndicate. As a result, the Korean buyers initiated a SEAC proceeding against VMG claiming breach of warranties and misrepresentation. The tribunal issued an award in favor of the Korean companies, ordering VMG to pay about $26 million in damages. However, the Vietnamese courts rejected the recognition and enforcement of this award, sparking an appeal from GPS and UTC. The High Court of Hanoi has now published its decision, standing by its initial ruling. Now, why did the High Court uphold this decision? Here are a few reasons that it offered. Firstly, it cited a violation of fundamental principles of Vietnamese law when the tribunal rejected VMG's request to postpone the SEAC hearing. VMG wanted to wait until the Supreme Court had viewed a 2018 court statement about the role of ePay in the gambling case, but the tribunal went ahead with the hearing. Secondly, the High Court argued that the tribunal breached Vietnamese law by applying Singapore law, namely the Misrepresentation Act of 1967, to resolve the misrepresentation claim by GPS and UTC. It believed Vietnamese law should have been applied, given that there was no agreement on the governing law for the non-contractual claims in the share purchase agreement. Thirdly, the court argued that the tribunal failed to ensure VMG's expert witness had received proper notice to attend the hearing. And fourthly, it claimed that the tribunal failed to prevent the claimants from using a physical backdrop during the hearing, breaching protocol. Lastly, and perhaps most interestingly, the court claimed that allowing GPS and UTC to enforce the award would require VMG to sell its assets in Vietnam. This, according to the High Court, would mean the dispute relates to real estate in Vietnam and therefore falls under the exclusive jurisdiction of Vietnamese courts. This reasoning could have a profound implication for future arbitration awards against Vietnamese companies. This High Court decision indicates a heightened scrutiny of international arbitration proceedings by Vietnamese courts, highlighting the importance of legal and cultural understandings in such disputes. Moreover, it underscores the need for careful considerations when submitting non-contractual claims to arbitration involving Vietnamese parties. That's where we'll leave this one, but let me know what you think in the comments or drop me a line in the show notes. Then, for our final story of the day, 
let's talk about this recent case that came out of a labor dispute proceeding in South Africa, highlighting the importance of adhering to prescribed rules and timeframes in judicial proceedings. First, some background. An applicant disgruntled with an unfavorable disarbitration award issued by the Commission for Conciliation, Mediation, and Arbitration, CCMA, on the 13th of August 2019, decided to challenge the ruling. According to the Labor Court's practice manual, they had 60 days to serve and file the record. If not, the review would be considered withdrawn. Well, the applicant didn't quite make the deadline. In fact, they served and filed an incomplete record a whole year later. Plus, they failed to serve and file all necessary documents within the 12-month time frame. The result? The review application got archived, effectively deemed withdrawn. Despite being made of this archiving, it took the applicant until July 8th of 2022, nearly two years later, to launch a reinstatement application. And no, they didn't provide any explanation for the lengthy delay. So, how did the labor court react? Well, the court reiterated its lack of jurisdiction to entertain a review application that's been deemed withdrawn or lapsed. The applicant had to offer a reasonable explanation for the delay, and the court found their justification lacking. For example, the applicant didn't address why it took almost two years to launch the reinstatement application after being notified of the review application's archiving. Plus, there were several significant periods of inactivity during the process that went unexplained. The court was not impressed. The court noted the applicant's lack of diligence in pursuing its case. Instead of seeking condemnation, which is effectively forgiveness for missing the deadline, the applicant occupied themselves with regularizing the record. A futile endeavor since there was no longer a review application in process. Furthermore, the applicant failed to seek the court's indulgence promptly after the first respondent alerted them to the lapse. That negligence, along with the absence of a solid explanation for the delay, weighed heavily against the applicant. Adding insult to injury, the court also found that the applicant's review application lacked merit. The original arbitration award was well-founded and the applicant's case was built on an assumption, not facts. Considering all of this, the court denied the applicant's reinstatement request. The applicant was also ordered to cover the costs related to the reinstatement application. This case serves as a warning for those initiating a matter in labor court proceedings in South Africa. If you don't comply with the court's rules and timeframes, your application could be deemed withdrawn or lapsed. And so that's our final story for this week. And in case you didn't get the memo, next week is the week. Tales of the Tribunal returns for season five of the show. It's hard to believe that we are there already and could not be more excited to share with you another great season. We have a great lineup of guests and we look forward to kicking off June right. So keep your eyes peeled for next Thursday for episode one of season five. Before we get out of here, a big shout out to the team at MoBeta Solutions for doing a great job with audio and editing as always. And for you listeners out there, thank you so much for listening. We look forward to seeing you next week. And this has been Disputes Digest by Tales of the Tribunal. And we'll see y'all next week. None of the views shared today or in any episode of Disputes Digest is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any organization or party for their inclusion on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees or organizations included appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearance should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.